Well, hello, everybody. We are back. We are back with the Bible breakdown. I'm so sorry that it has been so long since the last episode, and I feel like I've been promising that we'd be back in consistency for a while. But this time, well, I thought it the other times too. But again, I truly believe we are back into a normal rhythm. I had the opportunity to preach the last couple of weeks, which unfortunately didn't leave me a lot of spare time for the Bible breakdown. But not preaching again for a while, as far as I know. So that leaves plenty of time for the Bible breakdown. Excited to be back in it with you. Just to let you know what we did the last two weeks. So last time we chatted was about Hannah and Samuel. Then there was a story about the Israelites losing the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines. And the Philistines being tormented with like uh, tumors and rats. Or no, the rats were they made a they made like a gold mouse as a part of a sacrifice. It was a, it's an interesting story, but basically the Philistines capture the ark and a bunch of bad stuff starts happening to them. The Israelites are being dumb by trying to use the ark as like a special totem to give them victory when they're acting in rebellion toward the Lord. That's kind of what they were up to. And uh, then we talked about Ephesians two, which I think the point of that was to bring together the unit, which was kind of about the seriousness of sin. And talking about how we are dead in our trespasses and sins uh, before the intervention of God. And that was kind of, that's where we're at. Now, we're in a, a major transition period in the history of the nation of Israel. Okay? Pivotal moment. And we are moving out of the period of the judges. Samuel is the last judge of Israel. And the people of Israel are looking for a king now okay they're looking for their simba who just can't wait to be king they're not going to get a simba spoiler not for a while at least not this first one he's not a simba for sure he's a mufasa at best no scar scar's the bad one mufasa was a good king okay that's enough lion king for today maybe next week we are going to be in first samuel chapter 8 and we're going to be going through chapter 10 and so we're going to kind of look at this demand for a king from Israel. And we're going to look into their first king, whose name was Saul. And so we're going to get kind of the very beginning, his origin story a little bit. If you have ever seen the movie Zoolander, starring Ben Stiller, just go ahead and like keep that, like any memories you have of that movie in the back of your mind, because we're going to get a little Derek Zoolander kind of person in this story. And uh, I hope that you've seen that movie because it's a lot of fun. But for now, we will return to scripture instead of talking more about Zoolander and Lion King. That's two movies. It's been like two minutes and two movies. I promise this won't continue. But we are going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And here's what it says. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The names of the firstborn, or the name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, brutal, and your sons do not walk in your ways, also brutal. Now appoint us a king to judge us like all the nations. Okay, so Samuel, again, last judge. We saw him at the beginning of this book. Obviously, it's named after him. And Samuel was a a good judge. Like he was the judge extraordinaire. He, for the most part, really followed the will of God. 
unlike the other judges who a lot of them did it kind of uh, seasonally. Uh, but his sons were corrupt. So this actually kind of makes us think of the beginning of 1 Samuel when we talked about Eli. Um, and he was a pretty okay dude, but his sons were causing a lot of trouble. And that actually kind of led to Samuel becoming in the position he was. So Samuel, unfortunately, having the same issue with his sons, they are uh, kind of taking bribes and perverting justice uh, in their role. So the people decide, okay, we're done with this, and they request a king. So Israel up to this point had been what we would call a theocracy, okay, ruled by God. Uh, God is their king, effectively, ruled by God through the word of his prophets. So that was the governance structure of Israel. And from all accounts and everything we understand from the Old Testament, this was kind of God's design for the nation of Israel. This wasn't like a a temporary thing he was hoping that they would stick with until they figured out something else. Like this was God's design was that they would be a theocracy, that they would be ruled by the word of God, by in, would act in obedience of God. And that that word would come through the prophets like it did through Moses and then those after him. So both the telling and the listening portions of this theocracy had been failing. Okay. So the telling in the kind of the prophets and the priests, not specifically Samuel, but again, looking back at Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, and the listening portion, obviously the Israelites were having trouble with the listening portion of this theocracy that had been failing. Samuel is like not only upset to us, but almost like personally offended that they would do this to God. So he talks to God and he's like, I can't believe this. So picking up in verse seven of chapter eight, It says, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Okay, so God tells Samuel, please don't take this personally. Uh, This isn't a rejection of you. This is a rejection of me. Okay, so again, theocracy, God's the king. God specifically says they have rejected me from being king over them. So he's basically saying from the time I got them out of Egypt until now, they've been in disobedience. And this is a long-term rejection of God as king. That's what God is telling Samuel. So God says, all right. Listen to the people, do what they do, what they ask. But here's the thing before they get into this, let them know what a king does, what let them know the power that a king has. So that next section in chapter eight is Samuel kind of giving a real quick overview of what a king's power has over them. Okay. He explains that the king can take them and their kids for the army that he can take, that the king can take their land, that the king can take their animals, that the king king can tax them, that the king can take their servants, and that if they get mad about it and don't like the king, he gives them a warning that God is not going to rescue them from this. So unlike when they were taken over by hostile nations and God would send a judge who would deliver them, he's saying, this is not something I'm going to rescue you from. This is something that if you choose it, you're going to have to accept the consequences of it. And so Samuel lays it out. And for me reading that, I'm like, oh, it doesn't sound so awesome. But the people are like, uh, I think we know what we're doing. Let's do this kingship thing. The people are unfazed by this, uh, by this 
somewhat alarming set of rules that the king has and set of powers that he has. They are unflinchingly uh, holding to this plan that they just came up with. Even though they literally had God as their king. Oh, it's tough. It's tough watching them do it. But we do it too. That's why we read it. And that's why we talk about it, right? So that's what happens. So the people say they're going to have a king. Verse 22 of chapter 8, the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. So God's basically giving them over to their desire here, even though this isn't what they should be doing. So moving into chapter 9, then we see the beginning of the story of a person who is eventually going to converge with the story of the kingship, but it doesn't necessarily start there, but we can understand. I'll just read it. Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Aviel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So uh, we get here a like J. Crew model um, from the tribe of Benjamin. We get a little background on who his dad and grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather uh, are. And this dude is not just handsome. He's the most handsome man in Israel. And that is kind of a weird way of phrasing it. I think the ESV went literal. Um, here, but it's basically saying that he was like head and shoulders above everybody in height. So that's what we what we get. Um, and if you re- start, if you read this passage, and we're going to read a little more of it, if you start to read it just as a casual level, it just seems like the description of some handsome young fella. Um, and then we're going to see he's going to go on a little uh, donkey related adventure. Actually, let's go ahead and read that. So it says, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the lands of Shalishah. That's pretty cool. But they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. Okay, so handsome fella, donkey related adventure. The donkeys are lost. He's going to find them. It seems like we're just finding out this story. And again, I think we kind of know that uh, this must be related to the whole king thing that they were talking about in the previous chapter. So we kind of know we're getting an origin story here. It seems like on a casual level, it just seems like a description of a guy and his donkey-related adventure, right? But I was looking at a commentary on this book because there were some things that confused me. And actually, this wasn't what had confused me. I kind of stumbled upon it. Thank you, Dr. Robert Bergen, for your help. This is really kind of more, and as we look into it, this is kind of more of a comedy of errors leading us to believe that Saul is going to be a terrible king. Mm. So we'll track this through the story, but we see a, we see two things already. These first four verses, we see two things. First on the list, Saul was tall, right? We know that. I guess people have just always liked tall folks. I don't know. I guess they think it means something. However, this is the trouble. He's the only Israelite described as tall in the entire Bible. The whole Bible, he's the only one that's described as tall. That's crazy. You know who some other people who are described as tall, though? Oh, I don't know, Goliath. 
the Canaanites that the spies were afraid of. There's this group that they call the Anakim. And I think they're kind of related to the Canaanites. But they're all bad. It's a bad sign to be called tall in the Old Testament. Tall is not is not necessarily good, even though we'll see that the people are very excited by that fact. Uh, this is not actually from uh, an Old Testament writer perspective something good, because all the other people who are described as tall are bad. And Saul's the only one in the whole Old Testament. I said the whole Bible. I'm certain about the Old Testament because again, Dr. Bergen helped me with that. I don't. I'm not 100 percent sure on the New Testament. I, nothing I can think of. Okay, that's one. Second on the list, though, Saul was doing at least a little bit of light shepherding, right? But he was doing quite a poor job of it. He lost these donkeys, okay? They're easier to manage than sheep. Sheep are, of course, notorious. If you've ever heard a sermon on sheep or anything related to a shepherd, you're going to hear whoever's preaching talk about how sheep are dumb. And it is true. That's why they say it. It helps us understand our place because we're usually the sheep in the story, right? Donkeys are not actually that dumb. For the for the silly noises they make, they're actually not terribly dumb animals. They're also not terribly like likely to just run off um, in comparison to sheep. If a sheep sees one sheep running off, they're all going to follow, right? Donkeys aren't quite the same way. They're not as pack heavy and they're not as dumb. So first of all, he's lost an animal that's, uh, in comparison to sheep, relatively easy to keep track of. But also he couldn't find them. So it it says it goes to great lengths to talk about how, where all he looked and he can't find these donkeys. So uh, moving into verse five, then it says, when he came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back. Lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, behold, there's a man of God in this city and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? Okay, so they do some searching. Saul decides, uh, and he's taken this servant of his with him. He tells him, we should give up on the donkeys and go home so dad doesn't get too worried about us. Which is, I think, probably a reasonable thing to say. But his servant tells him, well, hey, there's actually like a, a man of God near here. Uh, we should probably go see him. Okay, we're already on to number three of our comedy of errors by Saul. Saul doesn't think of that and apparently does not even know who Samuel is, even though Samuel is crazy famous. Okay, the servant knows who Samuel is, but Saul doesn't know who Samuel is. Shall we move on to number four in the comedy of errors? Why, I think we shall. He's so unfamiliar with men of God, he thinks that he has to pay Samuel for like this divination. So he's kind of treating him more like a psychic than he is like a, a man of God. So we, we've literally gotten like seven verses into Saul's story. And he's uh, in the company of Canaanites and Goliath and Anakim. Um, he's a terrible shepherd. He doesn't know who Samuel even is. And he really has no idea like what prophets slash priests slash judges what their what their role is so he's already got quite a few strikes against him just really briefly into this story so that's what we're getting from paul again thanks to good old dr bergen for pointing out those things is very helpful um 
but yes, that's that's who we're dealing with now. So here's kind of what happens the rest of chapter nine. So they go to where Samuel is. They wait till he uh, he shows up. Uh, Samuel, we find out, had it's kind of like a little flashback that uh, the Lord had communicated with Samuel and told him who to expect, and he told him to anoint Saul. Okay, so he'd been told by God who to expect. Uh, in verse seventeen, uh, God tells Samuel that, and this is part of this this flashback in which he's talking to Samuel about who's showing up. Verse seventeen. God tells Samuel, this is the person who will, this is a quote from the ESV, restrain his people. Okay, so other versions are going to say rule. Some other versions. I haven't looked at a, uh, I haven't looked at them exhaustively, but other, some other versions will say, this is the one who I've chosen to rule my people. But this is actually the only place in the Old Testament, again, Dr. Bergen coming in clutch, helping with the research here. This is the only place in the New Test or in the Old Testament that this particular Hebrew word would be translated to rule. Everywhere else, it kind of has more of the uh, the connotation of restrain, and is often uh, is often translated to restrain or some other kind of synonym of that. This is the only place where it would be rule. So I think that other versions are probably trying to make a little more sense of it, but I think that tra- changing it to rule actually, I think we may be missing the meaning. I think the ESV has done a good job by kind of sticking true to the meaning of the word. I don't think that God is telling Samuel that this is the person who will rule, though that is true. I think this is an insight into really how God views this monarchy and what its purpose is. Because remember, he's warned the people about this monarchy. I think that he's being literal, like that the people will feel restrained by this king. So anyways, a little fun side note there. Uh, God, so then God goes on. He also does say that this person will deliver the people from the Philistines. Now, this is when I get to the point in the story where I say, oh yeah, the time of the judges is over. This honestly sounds a lot like the time of the judges though. Like governmentally it's changing, but from the personality of the people that God is using, remember a lot of the judges we saw were, were deeply flawed and God used them. And then they would judge the people, which really wasn't about like ruling or even like deciding court cases as much as it was being a deliverer. That was kind of more, the word savior might be in some ways closer than judge, not capital S savior, of course, but lowercase savior. But it's it sounds a lot like the period of the judges still, like it's almost like Saul is like a judge with a different title. So he's going to deliver the people from the Philistines. That's what God says, but also like, this guy's not, this guy's not the one who should be in charge. So anyways, Samuel meets up with Saul. He tells them the donkeys are safe. Do you know how they became safe? They made it back home on their own days earlier. That's, they were found by somebody else. That That's what happened to the donkeys. Saul couldn't find, Saul's looking for them actively. They basically wander home. And you might say, oh, God sent the donkeys home. Maybe, but maybe Saul was just really terrible at what he was doing. Um, I'll leave that up to your to your decision, though I don't think the case looks good for, for Saul. So anyway, Samuel hosts him for dinner. He gives him a place of honor. He gives him a food of honor. He gives him like the, the leg of, uh, was it lamb, I think, uh, that he served to them. Yeah, he gives him the leg. 
which is apparently, I mean, I, I really like the leg. It's got, you know, good tasty meat. But anyways, he gives him a place of honor, food of honor. Again, this is all before the anointing. Saul at this point doesn't necessarily know. Well, actually, no, just kidding. He does. He's kind of been, it's been alluded to that um, he is going to be king, but we're not there yet. Anyways, Samuel's kind of moving him toward this point. So then we move into chapter 10. Verse one, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Okay, so prince being more like um, Machiavelli's the prince, uh, not like he's got a there's a king and he's the king's son or something like that king prince being meaning ruler so he anoints saul this is private this is like a private anointing in verse 27 uh samuel has saul even send his servant on ahead so this is a very private kind of anointing um and so then after he actually does the anointing he tells saul all these very specific things that are going to happen on his way back home um and it's like you're gonna meet somebody they're carrying three young goats and another one's carrying three loaves of bread there's like all these things anyways it all like comes to pass eventually but uh moving down into verse 9 then of chapter 10 still in first samuel it says when he turned his back to leave samuel god gave him another heart and all these signs came to pass that day when they came to gibeah behold a group of prophets met him and the spirit of god rushed upon him and he prophesied among them and when all who knew him previously saw how he prophes- when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, "What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets?" And a man of the place answered, "And who is their father?" Therefore, it became a proverb: "Is Saul also among the prophets?" When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So this is actually the part that led me to. Dr. Bergen's um, commentary in the first place, because I was like, what in, the, what in the world is happening at the end of this passage? But see, here's what, before we get to that, we see what has the potential to make Saul different. Okay, we see the potential of Saul, the Derek Zoolander of Israel, who wants to establish a school for people who don't obey God good and want to learn to defeat Philistines good also. That's a Zoolander reference, if you are confused by my language. He has potential here to change. We see here that God gives Saul, it says, another heart, and he pours out his spirit on him. Okay, so this is what we see in the Old Testament with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rushes upon people for a time and is a sign of God's favor and election okay it's generally temporary that's what we normally see is it's temporary samson being a prime example if you remember from the story of samson the spirit of the lord would rush upon him he would do feats of strength and then the spirit would leave him uh, that's kind of what the norm is in the old testament and so one other way that the old testament it plays out is the king of israel at least, especially in this, we don't see this quite as much as the monarchy continues, but we see it with Saul. And it may be that we're supposed to understand this is kind of the nature of how it works. Maybe not. I don't want to uh, plant a firm flag on that. But we're going to see in Saul's 
kingship that the spirit of the Lord will be with him and then it will depart from him when he is acting in disobedience. So it's kind of the sign of God's favor and election. So when he's no longer the anointed, the spirit is no longer with him. We're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end here. But what we see is here, the spirit of God is with him. He is given another heart, which is good given what we've learned about Saul so far, right? So this is really where Saul has the opportunity to be the king he's supposed to be because the spirit is with him. God has given him a heart transplant, so to speak. We're talking about that, that deep core inner part of a person. So he has that potential. Now, it's not all going to come to fruition, unfortunately. But we do see now this weird part in verses 11 and 12. Let's read that again. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place, very specific, answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When I read that, I was quite, quite confused. Why would that be a proverb? And what does that proverb mean? Enter Dr. Bergen. Man, he's really, he's really carried me. He carried me this week. What is essentially happening is the people were basically joking that Saul was the product of an adulterous relationship, that his dad wasn't really his dad. Because he was prophesying along with all the prophets, his father wasn't a prophet. So they're like, what's, they're basically like, what's Saul doing prophesying? And somebody makes a joke wonder who Saul's dad is. And so it sounds almost like as a um, euphemism or something like that, they would say, is Saul also among the prophets? Kind of like, is is Saul like really truly his father's son is really kind of what that's going. So proverb is kind of a like nice word for what that is. It's really more like a joke. Like it became kind of a euphemism, a, a, a hidden joke, an inside joke um, that Saul was not uh, his father's son. So that's kind of what's going on there. Not particularly relevant, but I was very confused by it and I was glad to get some clarity. Again, thank you, Dr. Bergen. So now moving down to verse 17, it says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. All right. So Samuel gives them one kind of last warning, like you're bringing this on yourselves. Um, there's some judgment from God on that because uh, they've so poorly served him. Saul is chosen, but he's hiding in baggage claim. Okay, no one can find him. Is this humility or is this sign like number six that he's not who they hope that he will be? Not 100% sure. We'll find out. 
The people, though, at least, thank goodness. <laughs> Samuel says, oh my goodness. There, He says, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. Samuel is kind of moving the right, they're moving the wrong direction. But they celebrate how tall he is and how attractive he is. And they're pumped. Derek Zoolander is their king. And they're really excited. Okay, that's the that's the story of how Saul becomes king. Now, a couple things, I think, for us in our application. Number one, faith in a ruler isn't what God's covenant people are designed for. Okay, so whether that be in demanding a king, whether that be thinking a certain president is going to make everything just perfect for us, that is never where our faith is supposed to be. As God's covenant people, we are supposed to look at Jesus as our king. He is the one that we are supposed to look toward, the one who helps us understand how we should live, the one whose laws that we are intended to follow. That is what God's covenant people are supposed to do. Especially for us as new covenant believers who know the revelation of Jesus, we have just such a wealth of knowledge at our disposal through God's word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's where our faith is supposed to lie. No ruler is going to provide what we hope. Just like the people of Israel are hoping that this ruler could provide for them what they were lacking. What they were really lacking was obedience. What the people were really lacking was obedience to the king that they already had. Faith in a ruler is not something that God's covenant people, which if we have trusted in Jesus, we are a part of that. That's not what we are designed for. Second, and this is really a, maybe a little bit more tangential to the story, but I think it's also a time for us to reflect on what a gift it is to have the Holy Spirit. So if we believe in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit acts in many respects in our lives, helps re us recall the teachings of Christ, helps lead us into truth, serves as our seal, our designation that we belong to God, produces fruit in our lives. Uh, give, bestows gifts that we can use for the building up of the body, ultimately for the glory of God. We have that 24-7, 365, okay? It's not a situation like Samson's, or here we see Saul's. I'm kind of maybe a little spoiler alert, but the Spirit of God will not remain with him. We don't have to worry about, is the Spirit going to stay with us? Is it just going to rush upon us in a moment? Is the Spirit... Spirit, is he going to go? Is he going to depart as soon as we are in disobedience? Starting at Pentecost, all believers receive the Holy Spirit, and it's not just—it's almost like even the opposite. It has nothing to do with our behavior, but instead, the Spirit stays and is our seal and our mark that we belong to God, in spite of our behavior, and helps grow us in our behavior, grow us in our obedience. So we see this big shift from the time of the judges and the kings to where we are now. And it's a time, honestly, to reflect on the gift of the spirit and to bring glory to God in that. So I, I hope that the story of Saul is a good reminder uh, to you, as it has been to me, that um, there's, there's nothing that this world has to offer in terms of a leadership or a quality, things that we would look at a person for. If it's apart from being rooted in Jesus, being committed to serving God, then it's not worthwhile. Even any qualities we might try to conjure up in ourselves to make us feel like we're on the right track, that we're doing the right thing. All of it eventually comes back to a point where 
the currency of the kingdom is faith and dependence on God, not on anything of this world. Thank you.